right, well, it's fantastic to be here this morning, and uh, Jeff, I know you have been, you've invited me uh, one or, once or twice in the past, and I just haven't been able to make it, and so I'm glad that it worked out. I was a little worried, actually, because with COVID and the lockdowns happening uh, a couple months ago, uh, I was, man, it's, we're going to miss it again. We're going to miss the opportunity, and so uh, we're glad we can be here. My wife and I have been up, actually, since Friday. We made a weekend of it and uh, left the kids with my mom. And so this has been just a good getaway for us, a much-needed uh, getaway. I think most of us are probably at that point where, you know, the people in your household, you love them dearly, but they can drive you crazy sometimes. But we're going to be looking at King Jehoshaphat today. And so take your Bibles, turn to Second Chronicles uh, 17. And we're going to be talking about God's faithfulness when we misstep. God's faithfulness when we misstep. There's two places where you can read about King Jehoshaphat in the Bible. Uh, one of them is uh, 2 Chronicles 17 to 20. The other one is uh, in the book of uh, 1 Kings. Uh, 1 Kings is just really short, though, so... And what's said in uh, 1 Kings is also said in 2 Chronicles. So we're going to be in 2 Chronicles 17 to 20 this morning. <clears throat> and I've done a, just a ton of study on King Jehoshaphat in preparation for this. And uh, much to my disappointment, nowhere in this entire account do we see Jehoshaphat ever jump. I'm sorry there's no jumping Jehoshaphat in the Bible. Good pause for laughter. That's good. All right. Well, we're in the book of Chronicles, and I just want to give you just a really quick introduction to the book of Chronicles. If you've never read an introduction to the book of Chronicles before or you're not familiar with the book of Chronicles, uh, the book of Chronicles was written uh, during the post-exile period. So the Israelites have been taken into exile into Babylon. Jerusalem has been destroyed. And now they've started to come back. And as they've come back, they had all of this expectation and all of this hope that things were finally going to be restored. Things were finally going to be good again. And they get back into the promised land, and things are far from perfect. You can read the accounts of Ezra and Nehemiah and, in the Bible there, and, and you see that things are just far from perfect. And so, uh, the book of Chronicles is written, and it's compiled uh, probably over some time, and it uses probably some of the same source material as First and Second Kings. But you have this uh, writing, First and Second Chronicles, and you have these kind of themes start to develop for people who are living in the post-exile time to help keep them on track, to help them pursue God's best for them because they're living in post-exile and they thought everything was going to finally be perfect, but it is far from perfect. And so you see themes like uh, the temple very heavily all throughout the books of First and Second Chronicles and especially Second Chronicles here that we're looking at. And the whole idea is that the priests and the Levites and the temple, they are the ones who are going to help Israel worship Yahweh correctly. 
They're the ones, this is how we can worship, or the Israelites can worship Yahweh correctly. And this is so important for the nation of Israel if they want to pursue God. And then we read a lot about all of these different kings in First and Second Chronicles. And a lot of the kings, especially for, for, for Judah, for the section of Israel that was called Judah and Jerusalem, a lot of those kings are good kings. They seek after God. And as they seek after God, the, the chronicler, he, uh, the number of people writing chronicles, but uh, the authors of chronicles, they, they, they show us how just, you know, as these good kings, as they follow God, God blesses and God helps and God really uh, uh, helps the nation become the people that they should be. But then the other thing that we see, though, with these kings is that even the good ones, even the best of them, are incredibly flawed. And they make mistakes. And in those mistakes, it's a reminder that the king of kings has not come yet. Because all of Israel is waiting for this promised king to come, this king from the line of David who would restore the kingdom of Israel and make all things good, make all things new. And none of these kings that have come in the past fit the bill. And so we're still, they're still waiting. So that's just kind of the backdrop to our story this morning. I didn't want to throw us into the frying pan without a little bit of oil. And so... We're going to dig into the story of King Jehoshaphat, starting in verse 17 here, or sorry, chapter 17, and we're going to see some really uh, neat things about King Jehoshaphat. The first thing is that King Jehoshaphat is one of those good kings. He does seek after God, and he does it in a number of ways, and I just want to share those with you this morning. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 17, we read this, Jehoshaphat his son, that is the son of Asa, succeeded him as king and strengthened himself against Israel. He stationed troops in all the fortified cities of Judah and put garrisons in Judah and all the towns of Ephraim that his father Asa had captured. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the ways of his father David before him. He did not consult the Baals, but sought the God of his father's. And followed his commands rather than the practices of Israel. The Lord established the kingdom under his control. And all Judah brought gifts to Jehoshaphat so that he had great wealth and honor. His heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. Furthermore, he removed the high places and the Asherah poles from Judah. So here's our first stop. Here's our first stop along the road where we see we're introduced to King Jehoshaphat, and he is somebody who is described as being devoted to the ways of the Lord. Some translations translate that as courageous. He's courageous in the ways of the Lord. And we see him being courageous in the ways of the Lord because he goes down and he starts tearing down the high places of worship to other gods, to foreign gods, to gods that were not Yahweh. And I don't know about you, but whenever somebody tries to change something, at least tries to change something in my life, 
I don't like it. I like the way things are. And all of Israel is used to worshiping all of these other foreign gods. And here comes King Jehoshaphat, and he says, no, this, this needs to stop. I'm going to tear down all of these high places so that you cannot worship these foreign gods. He was courageous in the ways of the Lord, and it's backed up with his actions. Well, we read on. In the third year of his reign, he sent officials, Ben-Hail, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nathaniel, Micaiah, to teach in the towns of Judah. With them were certain Levites, Shimei, Nathaniel, Zebediah, Esahel, Shemariamoth, Jehonathan, Adonijah, Tobijah, and Tob and Anijah. If you're wondering how you can read those really tough biblical names, you just read them fast, because nobody else knows how to pronounce them either. <coughs> and the priest, Elishama and Jehoram, they taught throughout Judah, taking with them the book of the law of the Lord. And they went around to all the towns of Judah and taught the people. Look at what King Jehoshaphat does. He doesn't just rip down all the high places and then leave people on their own. No, he actually designates people, his officials, with Levites. Remember Levites? They're, they're, they're part of the, uh, the tribe that are going to be the priests. They're supposed to be the spiritual leaders of Israel. So with the Levites and priests, and they go about and they are teaching the, the law of the Lord. They're teaching probably the Torah to people. And they're helping them learn and understand the word of God. And so we see King Jehoshaphat, he is courageous in the ways of the Lord. He's tearing down the high places, and now he's setting up people to go and to teach throughout all Judah. And this continues on in chapter 19, verse 5 to 11. You can read about this as well. And in chapter 20, we, we see again as he goes into war how he relies on God and he prays. And God says, I'm going to deliver this army into your hands. And he trusts God and he believes God. And the army is defeated. And so we see the story of Jehoshaphat. He is a king that does seek after God. But what we also see is that King Jehoshaphat is incredibly flawed. He makes mistakes. One of, I think, the biggest mistakes that he makes is he makes a marriage alliance with King Ahab. King Ahab was probably one of the most wicked kings of Israel. So at this point in Israel's history, the kingdom is divided. There's the kingdom of Israel. There's the kingdom of Judah, right? And there are different kings in Israel than in Judah. And King Ahab was one of the most wicked kings in Israel. And King Jehoshaphat makes a marriage alliance with him. We read this. In chapter 18, verse 1, Now Jehoshaphat had great wealth and honor, and he allied himself with Ahab by marriage. And so when you read that, you might think, oh, he married somebody. 
But actually, if you uh, read down to uh, chapter 21 of Second Chronicles, which you don't have to, you can, take, you can take my word for it, or you can read it yourself. But you, you read that it's actually his son that he marries to King Ahab's daughter. And because of that marriage, his son is led into the sin and the wickedness of King Ahab. And the next king of Judah turns out to be very wicked, King Jehoshaphat's son. And we know that this is sin. We know that this is not the right way to align with the king of Israel because basically in this marriage alliance, King Jehoshaphat is saying, yep, there's nothing wrong with what you're doing, King Ahab. I'm going to align with you. Instead of saying to King Ahab, listen, we need to have an alliance, and that alliance should be based on our God. We are God's people, and we should worship him properly and, and be aligned because we are supposed to have the same God that we are following. No, instead, King Jehoshaphat doesn't even worry about any of that stuff, and he makes this marriage alliance just for peace, just so he can have peace with King Ahab, and he gives his son and daughter his son in marriage to one of Ahab's daughters. While the plot thickens here, as this alliance thickens, we read in uh, chapter 18, some years later he went down to see Ahab in Samaria. Ahab slaughtered many sheep and cattle for him and the people with him and urged him to attack Ramoth-Galid. Ahab, king of Israel, asked Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, will you go with me against Ramoth-Galid? Jehoshaphat replied, I am as you are, and my people as your people. We will join you in the war. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, first seek the counsel of the Lord. First seek the counsel of Yahweh. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, 400 men, and asked them, shall we go to war against Ramoth Galid, or shall I not? Go, they answered, for God will give it into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat asked, is there no longer a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micah, the son of Imlah. The king should not say such a thing, Jehoshaphat replied. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micah, the son of Imla at once. Dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria, with all the prophets prophesying before them. This is a big, nice, fancy show going on. Now Zedekiah, the son of Canaan, had, an, had made iron horns, and he declared, this is what the Lord says, with these you will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. All the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth Galid and be victorious. They said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The messenger who had gone to summon Micah said to him, look, the other prophets without exception are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak, and speak favorably. But Micah said, as surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what my God says. When he arrived, the king asked Micah, Shall we go to war against Ramoth Galid, or shall I not? 
Attack and be victorious, he answered, for they will be given into your hand. The king said to him, how many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then Micah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good about me, but only bad? Micah continued, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven, standing on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab, king of Israel, into attacking Ramoth Galid and going, and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked, I will go and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So, I mean, here's the scene, right? All of these prophets are prophesying that Ahab and Jehoshaphat should go into this battle. And uh, it's actually something that God is doing to try and deceive Ahab so that he will go to his death. So Micah continues, So now the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, king of Canaan, went up, son of Canaan, went up and slapped Micah in the face. Which way did the spirit from the Lord go when he went from me to speak to you, he asked. Micah replied, you will find out on the day you go to hide in an inner room. The king of Israel then ordered, take Micah and send him back to Ammon, the ruler of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, this is what the king says, put this fellow in prison and give him nothing but bread and water until I return safely. Micah declared, if you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. Then he added, mark my words, all you people. And so here's the picture that we see, right? Uh, Jehoshaphat is aligned with King Ahab, and, and they're taking counsel together. They call all these prophets. There's one good prophet. And he comes, and at first he says, yeah, you'll be successful. And then they say, no, don't lie to us. What are you, what are you really saying? And he says, no, don't go up. You're, you're, you're going to die. And... What happens? Jehoshaphat doesn't listen. And Jehoshaphat watches as this good prophet gets abused and imprisoned. And he says nothing. This is what his alliance with King Ahab has bred in his life. He's now complicit in the evil of King Ahab. When his ally deals wickedly, Jehoshaphat is silent. King Jehoshaphat is very flawed, and yet God is faithful to him. We can read in chapter 18, verse 28, down to 19, verse 11, about how God, he thwarts this alliance with King Ahab. As they go out into battle, um, this really neat thing happens. It's a really neat story where King Ahab, he tells Jehoshaphat, you know, I'm supposed to die, so you dress up 
as the king, and everybody will think you're the king, and you go out into battle, and I'll just dress up as a normal... Jehoshaphat, man, he followed the Lord, but could he see what was happening here? Right? Ahab is setting him up to die. And they go out into battle, and uh, of course, everybody is trying to get to King Jehoshaphat, because they think he's the king, they think he's Ahab. And King Ahab, and, and, he's, and he's not, and he cries out for help, and so everybody comes to help him, and, and they're pushing away the enemy from King Jehoshaphat. And then in the story, we read that an archer draws his bow at random, by chance, and releases, and strikes King Ahab, and King Ahab dies. And we see God thwarting this alliance with King Ahab. What I see as, as this battle is not successful and as they go home being defeated, that God does not stand with <clears throat> and help King Jehoshaphat in his alliance with King Ahab. He does not help him in his alliance with somebody who is wicked and doing evil. In fact, he thwarts it, and he does not give them success in the battle. And then we read in chapter 19, starting in verse 1 here, when King Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, returned safely to his palace in Jerusalem, Jehu the seer, the son of Hanani, went out to meet him and said to the king, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, the wrath of the Lord is on you. There is, however, some good in you, for you have rid the land of the Asherah poles and have set your heart on seeking God. And so this prophet or this seer comes out to um, uh, King Jehoshaphat and he, and he says to him, you know, what you're doing isn't right. He rebukes him. He said, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? There's this rebuke that God sends to King Jehoshaphat. And if you continue reading on, this is when we read about Jehoshaphat then implementing all of these reforms, these godly reforms where he sets up judges in all the cities and he uses the Levites and the priests again, right? Remember the Levites and the priests. They are how, they're the, 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 the tribe through which Israel can approach God. And so this is what this is symbolic of is that, you know, Jehoshaphat is, is once again being committed to God. He's responding positively to this rebuke that he's just received. And, and this is a good thing. This is how we see God's faithfulness to King Jehoshaphat. Maybe we don't think of failures and times when now, things don't go as we planned, as as God being faithful to us. But here in this instance, King Jehoshaphat, he's aligned with somebody who is wicked and evil, and God is faithful to him. The last thing that we see in chapter 20 is uh, God delivers King Jehoshaphat from his enemies, defeating armies for him. And there's this whole story, and we don't have time to read it this morning, but this whole story in, in chapter 20 of of uh, Jehoshaphat going out to do battle. There's this army that's coming against Judah. 
And he prays to God and he says, God, please deliver us. This is, that's just the, the Zethstadt's shorthand version. And, and the, uh, a prophet stands up and says, God is going to deliver you. Go out. You're not even going to have to fight them. And they go out to do battle. And a different army attacks the army that they were supposed to go and fight and utterly destroys them. This is God's amazing deliverance. And so even though King Jehoshaphat, he messed up really big sometimes, God is faithful to him. King Jehoshaphat does seek after God, and he is far from perfect. He makes some very bad choices. Nevertheless, God is faithful. He's faithful to himself, and he's faithful to this king who seeks after him. Well, let's boil all this down into a couple of principles. And the first principle that I think we should see from this story is that God does require supremacy in our life. God does require supremacy in our life. He needs to be supreme. And when God is not followed as being the supreme God in our life, it is clear from his actions against King Jehoshaphat, that this is not acceptable. This is not acceptable to God. And so I think the first question that we need to ask ourselves, and the question that the story should maybe prompt in us, as we see King Jehoshaphat live, and as we see God respond to how Jehoshaphat does mess up, and how he does make mistakes, is who is God to us? Or who is Jesus to you? In the New Testament, in Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 23, you can read about how Jesus is God-made flesh. He is supreme in all things. We also read in that passage about how through his sacrifice for our sin, we are brought back into a relationship with God. And so... God requires supremacy in your life. That supremacy is gauged by our response to Jesus. Who is Jesus to you? I had this really great opportunity to share the gospel uh, with somebody, uh, I guess it would have been last week, uh, last Thursday. Not this past week, I was away, but the week before. And I was sharing the gospel uh, with him. And we, we kind of came to this, this crux in our conversation, and I said, really, the question you have to ask yourself is, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? And, and he was very honest, and he said, you know, Zeph, I just don't know. I just don't know. And so I'm going to be chatting with him more, and I'm looking forward to that, but that's the question that we have to ask ourselves is, who is Jesus to us? What are you going to do with Jesus? God does require supremacy in our life. He needs to be supreme. He needs to be the head of our life. And that's gauged through our response to Jesus. Is Jesus number one in our life? The second point that I think we need to ponder and, and think about, or a second principle, is that God doesn't change. God doesn't change 
being the highest or being supreme in order to accommodate our missteps. God is faithful to himself. When King Jehoshaphat missteps and he makes a marriage alliance with King Ahab and when he disregards God's prophet, God doesn't say, oh, that's okay, you know, I'll just let this one slide. No, God is faithful to himself. He thwarts Jehoshaphat's plan. He comes and he rebukes Jehoshaphat for what he's doing. God doesn't change his supremacy in order to accommodate our missteps. In fact, God requires us to change in order to fit with his supremacy. God requires us to change. I love Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. We read, God says, I, 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 the Lord, do not change. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, we read, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God doesn't change. We need to change. And depending on your relationship with God, this is either extremely comforting that God doesn't change, or it's terrifying. Because God is God, and we are not, and he is the judge, and the judgment is coming. And we have to ask ourselves, are we on God's side? Have we made him supreme in our lives by turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus? Or are we still against God? He's not going to let our sin slide. And as a Christian, if you've made that decision to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, then we have to understand that the change that God is working in us, it's a work of His Spirit. It's not something that we can force or do on our own strength but it's a work of his spirit. I love how Romans 8 verse 13 talks about it. It talks about it being a work of the spirit as we put to death the sin of the flesh, the sin in our life that doesn't reflect who Jesus is. God doesn't change his supremacy to accommodate our missteps. He, in fact, requires us to change to fit with his supremacy. Third point of application. God doesn't abandon those who seek him when they misstep. God does not, God is faithful to his own character, but he's also faithful to those who seek him. And when they misstep, and when we misstep, and, and we do, almost daily, God doesn't just abandon us. Like King Jehoshaphat, when we misstep, God corrects us. And he corrects us with discipline and rebuke. Sometimes that rebuke comes from uh, a loved one or a pastor or uh, a group leader or somebody in the church. Sometimes that rebuke comes as we're reading the word of God and we're confronted with our own sin. And he does correct us. He does discipline us. He will thwart our plans. He will bring disaster on us in order to discipline us. But this is God's faithfulness to his people. I love Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12. It says, God disciplines those he loves. 
Or Hebrews 12, 6 to 11, talks about how, how God disciplines his, his people. And that this discipline is good because it builds godliness into us. And this is a, an encouraging thing. God doesn't leave us in our sin and in our brokenness. And, and, and not just in the fact that we are, are righteous in his sight because uh, of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross and we trusted in him, but God doesn't leave us in our sin in that he doesn't let us keep doing something that is sinful. He will come and he will discipline us so that we will start doing what is right and what is good. Because what he says is right and what he says is good is what is best for us. This is how much God loves us. And so those who have turned in trust in Jesus, they can know and they can rejoice in the fact that God does not forsake them. You know, as we were doing the baptism uh, just earlier, and um, Mark, you quoted from uh, the Great Commission there, Matthew 28. Right, all authority in heaven is given to me. Right, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right, teaching them to observe all things just as I have commanded you. And it doesn't end there, right? And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. This is our God who doesn't forsake us. And I get it. We make a lot of mistakes, even as Christians. We make a lot of mistakes. The church is filled with imperfect people. In fact, if you find a church that has perfect people in it, you should probably leave. And that's a joke. There are no churches with perfect people in them. But those mistakes and those missteps, that even those times when, when we sin, even as Christians, they don't block us from our mighty God if we, if we will seek him in a spirit of repentance and reliance. And so again, we come back to that question of what are you going to do with Jesus? Is that your heart? Is that your heart position? Is that your default heart position that you seek to have? I'm going to have a, a heart of humility and repentance and reliance. And so when God is pointing out sin in my life, it's like, yep, whew, I got to turn away from that. God, those people who have turned and trusted in Jesus like that, then God does not forsake them. Of James 4, verse 10, we read, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up. He will exalt you. Hebrews 3, uh, verse, or sorry, Hebrews 13, verse 5. Again, we, we read about uh, God and, and not forsaking his own. He will never leave us or forsake us. And I love 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of 
from all unrighteousness. First John is written to Christians. That isn't a, a gospel altar call that John is writing there. That's for Christians. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God doesn't abandon those who seek him, even when they misstep. And our last point, God has not forsaken broken humanity. You know, as we look at King Jehoshaphat and you see his flaws, we see the depravity of humanity, where even the best, even, and King Jehoshaphat is one of the best kings, uh, aside from, from David and, 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 and maybe Solomon, but King Jehoshaphat is one of the best kings in Judah. But even the best falls incredibly short of the glory of God. Even the best falls incredibly short. And this is what's stated in in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of who God is. His goodness and his character. Therefore, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. He is God's solution for our brokenness. His sacrifice that pays for our sin. His perfect life applied to our accounts. We need his leadership and his rule as the perfect king. You know, in Second Chronicles, as the writers of Second Chronicles are, are writing that, they are anticipating and waiting and looking for the king of kings to finally come. And guess what? In the New Testament, we see it. The king of kings comes. It's Jesus. And he wants to lead us in God's truth. This is why he says to his disciples in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so church, what are we going to do with Jesus? The subtitle of your series that you're going through is The Legacy We Leave. And I was thinking about that. And we'll conclude with this. You know, when you look at the account of King Jehoshaphat, sadly, it, it ends with another alliance with Ahab's son. God again has to rebuke King Jehoshaphat, and again he thwarts that alliance. And then tragically, the marriage alliance with his son, of his son with Ahab's daughter, it produces for Judah one of the most wicked kings. Now here's the hard truth that we have to accept. And we see this from King Jehoshaphat that the legacy of our sin and our brokenness is always more brokenness. The legacy of our sin and our brokenness is always more brokenness. But the legacy of Jesus is utterly different. It's one of redemption, righteousness, rejoicing. And so when we ask that question, what are we going to do with Jesus? I'm going to join Jesus in his legacy. Because he doesn't fail. Let's make Jesus supreme in our lives. Let's put to death sin that we encounter as we're following him. And let's 
Rejoice in God because he is faithful. He is faithful to himself and he's faithful to his people even when they misstep. Let's pray. Our Lord, Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for our time. God, I just pray now that as we go from here and God, as we consider these truths, as we consider the story <clears throat> of King Jehoshaphat, God, that you would be at work in our hearts and our lives. God, that you would be supreme. God, that you would be glorified and lifted high. God, may we consider for ourselves, what are we going to do with Jesus? May we join in his legacy, a legacy of redemption and righteousness and rejoicing. God, we thank you and praise you for how you work. We thank you that you're faithful to yourself. We thank you that you're faithful to us as we seek to be humble before you, as we seek to repent, and as we seek to, to rely on you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Zeth, thank you very much. And uh, Zeth, appreciate the reminder. Again, there's good kings and bad kings, but there's no perfect kings. But Zeth, appreciate the reminder that in our missteps, God is faithful. God does not abandon us. And, and, and for some of you today, or for some of you watching, that's just the encouragement that you needed, the faithfulness of God, how he does not abandon us, his grace. So there's a personal testimony to that we can have. There's also sort of a corporate testimony we can have to God's grace. I don't know if when you drove in this morning, you saw a new sign out there, preschool is open now. Praise God for his grace around here. And I don't know, we don't have new atrium decorations. The alligator is not staying. But for this week, about 100 children in camp this week. And so praise God for his grace on our church even this week. And please pray. Pray for the preschool. Pray for our summer camp starting this week in that regard. And as we head out and reminded of the grace and the faithfulness of God, we always end each service with just four words and it's a reminder of the mission we have to share this good news. So let me wrap us up by saying, Harbor, we are sent.